Welcome to the Bulgarian History Podcast, Episode 200, The Balkan Wars in Retrospect. First, I want to give a big shout out to, uh, I think, Andre von Menz, Andre, uh, for his very generous donation, and to both him and Albert Cohen for becoming patrons on Patreon. Thank you so much to the both of you, and as always, you can support this podcast for as little as $1 per episode and get some cool special things like extra episodes, special on the Crusades, special on the history of Bonsko, access to all the transcripts if you're ever curious to kind of explore and see what I've written, which is occasionally different than what I say. I sort of mix it up. I read a transcript, but I also kind of improvise bits like what I'm doing right now. So if you're ever curious to see all that stuff, you can get access to to it through Patreon. Also, just a quick shout out that this is episode 200. You know, just over 10 years into this podcast, 200 episodes in, we're now, you know, well into the 20th century. I can hardly believe that at the moment I'm writing about the First World War. That's I'm a few episodes ahead for once. Uh, but yeah, just thank you to all of you who've helped me get to this milestone to 200 episodes. Really excited to take this all the way till the present day. And I hope you all will continue to listen and enjoy. And with all that preamble out of the way, let's get into things. Now, last time we covered the second Balkan war as Bulgaria attacked Greece and Serbia in an attempt to gain the territories it was sort of arguing over with them. As a result, the Bulgarian army was pushed back before both the Romanians and Ottomans invaded, meaning that despite ultimately getting some defensive victories against the Greeks and Serbs, there really wasn't any doubt as to the outcome of the war. As a result, the Treaty of Bucharest ensured that Bulgaria kept only a small portion of Macedonia, basically Piran Macedonia it's referred to as, and a poorly developed stretch of the Aegean coast. But a peace treaty with the Ottomans is still yet to be decided, so just how much land Bulgaria will lose in Thrace remains to be seen. Now, I want to take this episode and sort of take a step back and look at both Balkan Wars as a whole, because these were obviously monumentally important events in Bulgaria's history, but they were also kind of fascinating conflicts for a lot of reasons and really milestones. So I wanted to run through that with you. Now, Let's start with some analysis of the military aspects of these wars, starting with aircraft. Now, this is, you know, obviously Bulgaria's first war using aircraft. And although Bulgaria's use of aircraft in the siege of Adrianople marked an important milestone, overall, Bulgaria's strong and early investment in air power, remember Ferdinand was the first kind of monarch to go up in an airplane a few years back, still aircraft had very little effect on the war. And this was mostly just due to size. Bulgaria had only 29 airplanes that uh, flew a total of 230 missions between both Balkan wars, and only 79 of those missions were were actual combat missions, and the rest were reconnaissance. So you can imagine, 230 missions, you know, in a modern conflict or something, those number of, uh, you know, flights might happen in a day or a couple of days, and this is over, you know, many, many months. And so just the fact that this is basically the second war after the you know Italian-Ottoman war that just ended, the second war in human history to really use aircraft. So 
There both aren't many of them, and understandably, people are still figuring out how to use them. So it was a real milestone, but not a big impact. Though, there's an interesting story that a Bulgarian reconnaissance aircraft did spot the Ottomans disembarking at Sarkoy on the Sea of Marmara during the First Balkan War. You remember when the Bulgarians kind of reached about the you know, maximum point, they were on the, the shores of the Sea of Marmara and you know a bit in the Gallipoli Peninsula when the Ottomans did that landing on the Sea of Marmara. It was Bulgarian reconnaissance that spotted that landing and gave the Bulgarians time to respond to it. So on the scale of the whole war, that's probably the singular most important contribution of aircraft. And that, you know, it's hard to know for sure, probably could have made a pretty substantial difference by even a few hours of extra time for the Bulgarians to respond to those landings. Now, I think interestingly and ironically, some states, some countries at this point are actually considering abandoning aircraft as tools of war based on their performance in the First and Second Balkan Wars. Though the incoming First World War is going to change that and they'll start to you know, hint at what their full potential will be. But I thought that was an interesting tidbit. So again, overall, Bulgaria is a pioneer of aircraft, but little effect. Another interesting irony of the Balkan Wars is the contrast between the relatively modern weaponry employed compared to the late 19th century methods for supporting the soldiers operating that we weaponry i.e. logistics, both from poor local infrastructure and poor management, really hampered armies on both sides. Food was bad, many soldiers went hungry, uniforms, particularly boots, were wholly inadequate for the difficult weather, particularly in the winter, leading many soldiers to end up barefoot by the end of the conflict. Now, this is another issue that, you know, at the end of the day, logistics just aren't as sexy as getting a new rifle, a new artillery piece, aircraft, what have you. But, you know, anyone who's kind of is interested in military history and things like that should know that logistics are absolutely fundamental. They're bedrocks. And this is one of those issues. The Balkan states invested very heavily in trying to get modern weapons from the West, but the local infrastructure was not nearly as much of a priority, and the use of all those modern weapons was really hampered by bad logistics. And this tied in a lot with poor communications, particularly for the Ottomans. The Austrian military attaché in Constantinople noted that the Ottoman military, their kind of communication systems, were worse than they had actually been a hundred years earlier, with orders often taking seven to eight hours to get from generals to the soldiers on the front. Now, besides communications and logistics, wounds from artillery were much more common than before, because soldiers now spent a lot more time in static trenches where they could be targeted with artillery. Again, this is something that we're going to see a lot more in the First World War, where the kind of war of movement that you saw in previous conflicts where, you know, people weren't sitting around for long periods of time, there weren't a lot of sieges and things, that was being replaced by much more static warfare. And as a result, the proportion of overall casualties from artillery rises exponentially. Now, this increased use of artillery often resulted in what doctors at the time called traumatic neuroses, or what would soon be known as shell shock, and what we now refer to as PTSD. Now, in their own words, many soldiers talked about how the, this new kind of war brought this, this sort of invisible death, where instead of fighting in close proximity where you would actually see your enemy, 
Many soldiers were wounded and even died without ever seeing an enemy soldier. And some reports saw Serbian soldiers refusing to dig trenches because they thought that they were cowardly, while many Bulgarian officers lamented the lost importance of the bayonet. Again, these are pretty much all things that we're going to see. I mean, we're not going to cover the First World War, at least the early part, in that much detail because Bulgaria's not super involved. But if you do look at any other media about the First World War, nearly all these things are echoed there. And, you know, a lot of kind of soldiers and generals alike feel that this kind of, the the distance that artillery creates in warfare and the lack of face-to-face combat sort of somehow deprives the the sort of masculinity or the the, the kind of honor from war. But honor and uh, a sense of glory and masculinity, all that aside, these are the realities of modern war. But beyond just weapons and tactics, the Balkan Wars were also strikingly different compared to what the Balkan states had experienced before in terms of scale. The the armies of the Balkan states were often five to ten times larger than anything they had fielded in the past, and battles now lasted for days or weeks instead of mere hours. Battles were fought where the forces of a single side often exceeded the size of Napoleon's largest army a century earlier. And on the First Balkan War alone, 10% of Bulgaria's population fought. Though, for comparison, about 18% of Germans would ultimately fight in the First World War. So this is still not nearly the levels that uh, a lot of countries will reach in the First World War. But it's that difference, you know, if you know Napoleonic era, this concept of levé en masse, of kind of mobilizing an entire society around a war and you know, the Balkan states at this point, they all have mandatory military service and you know, virtually all the young men were called up. But as we saw for Bulgaria, this also had the side effect that maintaining that mobilized army for longer had a much higher cost. You know, if you're dealing with a, a small kind of professional army, then keeping them in the field, keeping them operational isn't as big a deal because, you know, they're professional soldiers anyways. But when your army is made up of, you know, basically the entire young male population of your country, then the longer you have them mobilized and at the front, the longer they are not, you know, farming or, or doing whatever, you know, things in the fields or, or, or just working in the economy, the costs are much, much higher. And we saw that that was one of the things that pushed Bulgaria to start the Second Balkan War so quickly and so, you could say, recklessly. But otherwise... These wars did show what could happen when entire societies mobilized around war. From the massive military spending that preceded them to the staggering number of soldiers under arms, with around 1.3 million soldiers fighting in the First Balkan War and 1.7 million in the Second. And, you know, considering just the, the size of the population in the Balkans, it's not that big, these are massive numbers of men at arms. The costs as well, translated into 2014 dollars, which is where I could find kind of a good translation, Bulgaria spent about $3.2 billion on the Second Balkan War alone, with the other kind of Balkan states spending nearly $4 billion combined. So the costs in terms of you know the, the men-at-arms, the amount of you know treasure expended, are just orders of magnitude larger than anything the Balkan states have seen before. Now, 
There's the cost of lives. Excluding civilians, the two Balkan Wars led to the death of around 200,000 soldiers. Add to that civilian deaths and the tens of thousands of soldiers who died from cholera, typhus, and dysentery. But the cost paid by civilians really went even further past just simple disease. The British consul in Thessaloniki wrote how, quote, The result of the massacre of Muslims at the beginning of the war, of the looting of their goods in the ensuing months, of the settling of Christians in their villages, of their persecution by Christian neighbors, of their torture and beating by Greek troops, has been the creation of a state of terror among the Islamic population. Their one desire is to escape from Macedonia and to be again in a free land. End quote. Yeah, I've, I talked as I covered the wars about how the civilian populations were routinely massacred or just, you know, on the lighter side, just simply abused and discriminated against based on their religion or their ethnicity by essentially all sides. And one of the things really fueling this was propaganda. Propaganda was used to dehumanize people on a in really an enormous scale, with one famous example being Greek posters depicting Bulgarians as subhuman barbarians. And I'll talk about those in more detail in a future episode when I discuss the Carnegie Report. But, you know, just the idea that you have posters depicting your enemies as, again, subhuman, showing them sort of uh, eating human flesh and just, you know, as these kind of animalistic monsters. And this, you know, resulted in brutal actions. For example, Montenegrins often cut off the noses and lips of Ottoman soldiers to use them as trophies to demonstrate their own heroism. A correspondent from a Danish newspaper wrote about the treatment of Albanians, which he called Arnots, so in the quote they referred to as Arnots, by the Serbs, writing, quote, Serbian military activities in Macedonia have taken on the character of an extermination of the Arnot population. The army is conducting an unspeakable war of atrocities. According to officers and soldiers, 3,000 Arnots were slaughtered in the region between Kumanovo and Skopje, and 5,000 near Pristina. The Arnot villages were surrounded and set on fire. The inhabitants were then chased from their homes and shot like rats. The Serb soldiers delighted in telling me of the manhunts they conducted. End quote. Ironically, this is one of the other, you know, very interesting elements of the Balkan Wars is there are quite a few foreign reporters. And again, this contributes to the quality of the Carnegie report I'll discuss in a future episode that was able to really use a lot of firsthand accounts, both from people interviewed on the ground who survived these events and from all the many, many journalists who were there watching these things, interviewing the soldiers. And from that example, a lot of example, many of these soldiers didn't feel they had anything to be ashamed of. They were, they were proud of the actions they took in their mind because, again, the propaganda in a lot of these countries, the kind of uh, discussions of uh, the framing of the war as one of kind of Christian liberation or something like that helped communicate to these soldiers that these kinds of abuses, these, these egregious abuses of human rights were justified. Now, all of these brutalities have resulted in massive numbers of refugees. It's estimated that by the time the First World War starts, which is about a year in the future, so from the first beginning of the Balkan Wars to the beginning of the First World War, 
nearly a quarter of a million Muslims will have fled the Balkans to the Ottoman Empire. Another quarter of a million Bulgarians will have fled to Bulgaria from newly conquered territories, including about 100,000 from lands the Ottomans will ultimately retake once a treaty there is signed. Many Turks who fled to the Ottoman Empire were subsequently settled on land that Bulgarians had just left in what is going to fast become a very common practice in the region. Sometimes this is sort of more informal, but often governments have this as basically policy. They try to do everything they can to push out one ethnicity, and then they have the incoming refugees of their ethnicity settled in those territories. But, so overall, you know, we, we have, you know, over half a million refugees moving in all directions. And also as a result of these wars, there are now about a million Bulgarians living outside the country's border. And that's even with hundreds of thousands of those Bulgarians moving inside the country's borders. Now, besides journalists, the Balkan Wars were also watched closely by European military attaches, and I've quoted quite a few. And they viewed it as, usually as a modern war capable of providing valuable insights to the European great powers. And this makes some sense, because the great powers at this point hadn't fought each other on land at scale for decades, I mean, really since, I guess, the Crimean War. So, the great powers were very eager to see how all of their new modern weapons and tactics would impact war. Remember, a lot of the kind of journalistic coverage of these wars in the great powers, particularly in France and Germany, was about Krupp versus Schneider guns and like whether the French guns or the German, you know, sort of siege weapons and artillery pieces were performing more effectively. So they were interested in tactics and the technologies to see how they would all come out. And yeah, but ultimately... Some observers concluded that the Balkan Wars could teach the European great powers very little because they felt that the, these wars more closely represented a kind of colonial conflict and not anything on the scale of what the great powers would fight. Although, frankly, I think they were quite wrong. And you know, again, if you look at the lessons from the Balkan Wars and what is going to happen in a year in the First World War, a lot of the lessons are very applicable. And, you know, Maybe the difference is that the Balkan Wars didn't last as long, and so they didn't settle into the same kind of stalemate and things that the First World War did, but they are quite similar. And so I think the analysts who think, oh, we can't learn anything from these, you know, Balkan peoples, this is, you know, might as well be a conflict in Africa or something, I think they're clearly quite wrong. But this was a belief many held. But even when they didn't take the lessons of the Balkan Wars seriously, even if they had taken them seriously, there was understandably very little time to absorb these lessons. Again, you know, the end of the, of the Second Balkan War is about a year before the First World War begins, so not a lot of time to really absorb these lessons. However, some German and Austrian officials did conclude that the Balkan Wars showed the vital importance of creating what they called a belligerent spirit amongst the soldiers and broader societies, which is something that they would apply to their upcoming wars and, you know, Again, if you want to dive more deeply into the First World War, you can see what the results are. Now, the American military attaché assigned to Belgrade, Sofia, and Athens, was, you know, I, th I think at this time they shared basically one embassy and one set of kind of diplomats and officials, so one guy for all of them, noted another issue in how foreign military attachés viewed the conflict, writing, quote, 
The attachés were extremely keen on the strategy of the campaign, on the strategic possibilities, on map discussions, and on map movements of divisions and armies. But the construction and position of trenches, the effect of fire on trenches, and the lay of the country, and the handling of men, they did not regard as much interest to general staff officers. End quote. In other words, in general, the foreign power kind of military attaches observing the Balkan Wars, they were obsessed with the big picture and really ignored the smaller scale tactics. Tactics which, I think, would have proved very valuable in terms of lessons once the First World War begins. Now, George Kennan, in his introduction to the 1993 reissue of the Carnegie Report on the Balkan Wars, wrote, quote, the strongest motivating factor involved in the Balkan Wars was aggressive nationalism. But that nationalism, as it manifested itself on the field of battle, drew on deeper traits of character, inherited, presumably, from a distant tribal past. End quote. So I'm quoting him to, to show that, you know, that, that kind of belligerent spirit that the Austrians and the Germans talked about, this also tied into a common perception of the Balkans that goes to this very day of these sort of ancient hatreds and the distant tribal past. But I think it's important to reject this tragically common tendency to pin the brutal realities of the 20th century in the Balkans on tired tropes like ancient hatreds. Now, you're a listener to this podcast. You should know that, you know, the brutalities of these kinds of conflicts they have very specific and clear causes without the need to resort to vague declarations about deep you know, history or, or violence in someone's I don't know, character or blood or whatever it is. Basically, if you ask me, that kind of framing is lazy, is an excuse. And it's dangerous because when you attribute violence to something like ancient hatreds, then you don't attribute it to the thing that's actually causing it. And it's important to understand what actually causes violence and hatred and, you know, dangerous nationalism and all these sorts of things if we're going to, you know, do something about them, if our societies are going to evolve past them. So I want to kind of quote that and put it in here as a reminder that when thinking about the Balkan Wars, you know, all of them throughout the 20th century, to remember that that kind of framing is just intellectually lazy and it's an excuse to really not interrogate what the deeper causes are further instead to just sort of wave them away with a vague, you know, excuse that just explains it all without having to do any real analysis or thought. Now, ultimately the sad reality is to quote the wars of yesterday one final time, quote, after the end of the organized military actions in 1913, no period of peace followed in the Balkans. On the contrary, while the new state borders were drawn, guerrilla fighting continued, with informal military groups terrorizing the civilian population and expelling those whom they perceived as non-natives of their respective newly gained territories. On the state level, Balkan governments introduced propaganda campaigns accusing the other former belligerents of war crimes. Alas, the large number of pamphlets, reports, and leaflets documenting the atrocities committed during and after the wars by all sides involved did not reach the diplomats of the great powers, whose decisions about the future of the former Ottoman territories reckoned only with their own interests. End quote. So, 
this is another important thing to emphasize. And I'm, I'm going to talk about, you know, in the coming episodes about the time between the Second Balkan War and the First World War. But something worth thinking about as a whole is exactly what the book mentioned there, that the fighting didn't really end, that the violence of the Balkans continues right on. And when we think about the horrors of the First World War in Europe and, and how damaging it was and what the costs were in the Balkans, it's important to remember that the fighting that culminated with the end of the First World War began years earlier. And that it's a, this is just some context we need to remember. And it it's important to to understand that, you know, even when the kind of peace treaties are signed, you know, organizations like the VMRO are continuing to operate. You know, the, the Serbian military, the Greek military, the Bulgarian military, the Ottomans, they, all these armies are continuing to fight partisans, to oppress everyday villagers. All these things that happened during the wars are continuing to happen. Now, I think Hall summarizes the realities of the Second Bal Balkan War best when he wrote, quote, Having provoked the Second Balkan War, the Bulgarian recovered from initial catastrophes to successfully defend their country against a Greek and Serbian invasion. Indeed, the defeat of the Greeks at the end of the war might have enabled the Bulgarians to then turn on the Serbs and push them out of Macedonia. The presence of Romanians and the Ottomans on Bulgarian soil, however, negated any advantage this victory brought. The Bulgarians lost the war the day the Romanians crossed the Danube. End quote. So, I see that as the kind of inherent lesson, the inherent tragedy of the Second Balkan War. It should have been obvious that it was unwinnable because simply starting it meant inviting Romania and the Ottomans to attack whenever they felt like it. Had Bulgaria's policymakers simply put themselves in the shoes of their counterparts in Constantinople and Bucharest, they could have seen that fact. I agree with historians who argued that had Bulgaria given up the Saloniki in negotiations with Greece back in the summer of 1912, Greece would have had a reason to ally, or would have not had a reason rather, to ally with Serbia against Bulgaria. Likewise, as difficult as it was, had Bulgaria simply given up southern Dobruja to Romania, it could have potentially kept them out of the war. And these are not easy decisions, as I've talked about. You know, Bulgarian governments could have easily been overthrown, leaders assassinated for making those decisions. So it's easy to say that in hindsight, but I think those are the realities. But again, yeah, even had those exact decisions would have been made, it's hard to say the outcome would have been different because the government might have been you know, overthrown in a revolution or something because the population was just not willing to you know, trust their government to make those kinds of concessions, to, to do those kinds of negotiations. So... It's easy to criticize the government and the Tsar and, uh, you know, say they should have just accepted these terms or that terms. And yes, accepting the realities of the moment and biding your time made a lot more sense than attacking right away and beginning the Second Balkan War, but the Bulgarian people probably would not have accepted that course of action. Now, the other key factor behind the disaster of the Second Balkan War was the fact that Bulgaria did not have the full support of any of the great powers. And here the issue of Russia comes to the forefront. Once again, the fact that so many Bulgarians held a sincere belief that Russia was a kind of natural, eternal friend and ally made it impossible for Bulgarian foreign policy to operate normally. So much faith was put into the Russian government 
the Russian government that abandoned Bulgaria to its fate, as it has done so many times in the history we've covered in this podcast, so that, you know, essentially Russia ultimately chose to improve relations with Greece, Serbia, and Romania instead. But the fact that prior to the war, Bulgaria couldn't, you know, genuinely pursue other options other than Russia because of this, this sense that, you know, so many of the politicians are Russophiles and so many of the politicians and political parties want an alliance with Russia no matter what, this, this kind of disrupts the normal functioning of diplomacy in Bulgaria and I think made it so much more difficult for Bulgaria during the Balkan Wars. Because again, as we've seen in the Second Balkan War, if one of the great powers had sided with Bulgaria firmly and said, if this continues, you know, or if, if uh, you know, this territory is taken from Bulgaria, whatever, then we are going to war, you know, we're going to defend them, things would have been dramatically differently. But because Bulgaria put all of its eggs in one basket, really just relied so much on Russia, and Russia did not reciprocate, Bulgaria was put in a terrible situation. In essence, it was a situation where Bulgaria, from the Russian perspective, was expected to simply do whatever Russia said under any circumstances, even you know, give up territory. However, in turn, Russia felt it had no obligations and could do whatever it liked. You know, the way the Russians framed this relationship was incredibly one-sided. Uh, again, you know, when Bulgaria asked Russia to, you know, arbitrate or, or to sort of step in or act or something, they would not do so. However, we, you know, quoted Russian diplomats and officials who talked about the sort of the gall and, and how they felt that Bulgaria was being sort of uppity and doing whatever it liked and how they disapproved of this. Hall writes how, quote, in the Second Balkan War, the situation in Bulgaria recalled that of Poland during the years of the Deluge, 1648 to 68, or France after the Battle of Nations in 1813, or perhaps Nazi Germany after the summer of 1944, when all or almost all allies had deserted the protagonist. Few other countries in European history have endured the catastrophe of invasion on all possible fronts. In the summer of 1913, only Bulgaria's Black Sea littoral remained safe from the intrusion of foreign armies, end quote. So just thinking about, again, wh what the Second Balkan War meant, why it's referred to as kind of the first national catastrophe, and how rare it is, as Hall points out, for a country to be invaded on every possible border. <laughs> it's, there's very few cases in history where that has happened, and you know, he can cite three in the last, you know, basically four centuries uh, of European history. Now, today, I think I can say that most mainstream coverage of the Balkan Wars in, you know, more general documentaries, YouTube history content, that kind of stuff, I don't think is very good. As channels like Sunwheels Fortress, who many of you are fans of, have rightly pointed out, most discussions of the Balkan Wars say something along the lines of, Bulgaria was upset it didn't get more in the First Balkan War, and thus they invaded and started the Second Balkan War. The implication being that what motivated the Second Balkan War was just greed, that Bulgaria didn't get enough. But this again ignores the fact that Bulgaria was largely demanding territories that it had been promised in written, explicit written agreements. Territories for which Bulgarians had been sacrificing blood and treasure for decades. You know, this wasn't just something that uh, the Bulgarians could have wanted on a whim. I mean, you can say that about Adrianople. In general, Bulgaria never thought they would take nearly as much territory in eastern Thrace as they did. 
But the territory in Macedonia, portraying that as, as greed, really ignores the depth and the, the history and the historical context there. And it's, again, as a listener to this podcast, context that you're well aware of. So while the wisdom of resorting to the Second Balkan War to rectify the situation can rightly be questioned, framing the reasons behind the war as pure greed or as being some kind of a sore loser misses the entire point. It's as if someone stole your car and when you asked for it back, they called you greedy. You know, it's, it's, it's bizarre to kind of frame a territory that Bulgaria has been trying to obtain and sacrificing, again, just staggering amounts of blood and treasure for decades and decades in which had been explicitly promised to them in a treaty. And that's what they're asking for, but saying, oh, they're just greedy because they wanted that. It's, it's bizarre. And to kind of put that on the same level as, you know, just wanting more than you got, I think is incorrect and even a little insulting. I mean, it, it's to the memory of all those Bulgarians who, you know, paid those taxes, donated those monies, died trying to fight to liberate Bulgarians living in Macedonia. It sort of portrays all that as insignificant, not important. Now, I was glad to see that, for example, the historian Misha Glenny argues that, quote, the Second Balkan War was motivated by sheer greed and nothing else. Greece and Serbia simply decided to attack Bulgaria in its moment of maximum weakness, exhausted by its sacrifices the previous winter, end quote. Now, he does rightly point out that the Bulgarians weren't blameless, but I do appreciate that framing, that showing that, oh, it was just the Bulgarians that were greedy when, in fact, you know, the, the Greeks and the Serbs were trying to get, you know, as much as possible and were, in many cases, explicitly trying to take territories that they had already signed away. I, I appreciate that more balanced perspective that, yes, greed was the motivator for the Second Balkan War, but it was you know, greed by many people and not just Bulgaria. And pinning it solely on Bulgaria, I think, is yeah, wrong. Now, Bulgaria has found itself at this point in its history without friends, with a society embittered by the great sacrifices made for what was so quickly lost, and with a massive budget deficit to boot. The combination of enormous loans taken out to pay for weapons, the need to support hundreds of thousands of refugees and war widows, and the expenses of organizing and incorporating the new territories into the Bulgarian state are all putting immense strain on the new Radoslavov government. Greece and Serbia had similar challenges and obtained loans from French banks, while Bulgaria borrowed half a billion francs from a German bank, indicating where the loyalties of the Balkan states lay in the aftermath of all the fighting. It's also important to note that while Serbia became far more powerful as a result of these wars, it also gained an enormous number of Bulgarians and Albanians who, as I mentioned before, are going to go on fighting the Serbs for years to come. Diplomatically, despite everything, Bulgaria now attempted to create an alliance with the Ottomans which it thought might help it regain Macedonia, but the Ottomans rejected the proposal. Despite this, though, both countries were moving closer and closer to what would become the Central Powers. Because, yes, it's clear that Bulgaria is going to lose a lot of eastern Thrace to the Ottomans, but we all know, you know Bulgaria is much, much more interested in retaking southern Dobruja and Macedonia than retaking eastern Thrace. And so, you know, if it's going to ally with any of its neighbors, the Ottomans really make the most sense. 
Now, the British Foreign Secretary of the time wrote of the Treaty of Bucharest that, quote, it left Bulgaria sore, injured, and despoiled of what she believed belonged to her. Any future Balkan peace was impossible so long as the Treaty of Bucharest remained. Turkey, of course, was also sore and despoiled. Thus, when the Great War came a year later, there were two powers, Bulgaria and Turkey, hungering for a revanche and ready to take on whatever side would give them a prospect of obtaining it. This, naturally, was the side of Austria and Germany. End quote. So you can see how you know, this, the results of the Second Balkan War really push Bulgaria and the Ottomans towards the Central Powers. And yeah, when it came to negotiations with the Ottomans, the Bulgarians held some hope at this point of retaining at least some of their gains in eastern Thrace, but once again they found they had no backing from any of the great powers against the Ottomans. Now the Ottomans for their part were quite clear, simply stating, quote, what we have taken is ours, end quote in a kind of ironic repeating of the Bulgarian arguments made to the Ottomans just months earlier in London. Still, the Bulgarians do will kind of ultimately retain some Ottoman territory, you know, namely Western Thrace and a bit of the Stranja region. Uh, as always, you can find a map to, in the blog post in the uh, episode description. So, yeah, but I'll cover that more when we get to the treaty that formally ends the war with the Ottomans. Now, in a book published in 1923, Winston Churchill wrote of Bulgaria at this moment that, quote, It is possible that no nation ever contemplated its fortunes with more profound and desperate resolve than the Bulgarians at this juncture. All their sacrifices had been useless and worse than useless. All the fruits of their conquests had gone to aggrandize their rivals. They had been, as they considered, stabbed in the back and blackmailed by Romania, to whom they had given no provocation of any kind. They saw the great powers, England in the van, forbid the return of the t- to the Turks of Adrianople without offering the slightest attempt to make their word good. They saw not only Salonika, but even Kavala seized by the Greeks. They saw large districts inhabited largely by the Bulgarian race, newly liberated from the Turks, pass under the yoke, to them scarcely less odious, of Serbians and Greeks. It was in these circumstances that the Bulgarian army, in the words of King Ferdinand, furled its standards and retired to wait for better days. This warlike and powerful Bulgaria with its scheming king and its valiant peasant armies brooding over what seemed intolerable wrongs was the dawned factor in the Balkans in 1914 and 1915. And that last bit, uh, it's a bit of a preview uh, of the next couple episodes. And yeah, while there is a gap between the Balkan Wars and the First World War, again, they are deeply connected. So this is a very long episode. So to finish off, there's the question of Tsar Ferdinand himself. Many expected that he would come out of this disaster a broken man. Even more assumed that he would have to abdicate the throne. But people who met him, even in the last days of the Second Balkan War, were surprised and even shocked to report that he seemed in pretty good spirits. You can get a sense of his mindset from a statement he made about the Bulgarian army after the war, saying, quote, The Bulgarian people, as proudly tempered as a steel blade, stand erect in the tempest, bravely, calmly, as they defied death on the field of battle. 
At the voice of their leaders, they have furled their glorious standards for the days to come and taken up once more the patient work of reorganization, meditating on the ancient Eastern saying, all things pass, end quote. Now, towards the end of 1913, when the Russian ambassador in Sofia was leaving for a new post, he was harshly rebuked by Ferdinand for Russia's abandoning of Bulgaria in her hour of need. To this, the ambassador responded, quote, Sir, the Bulgarians have drawn their misfortunes on themselves and have forced Russia to give up all attempts to come to their assistance. And your majesty knows better than anyone where the irreparable blow was struck at Bulgaria's interests. It was on the 29th of June when the Second Balkan War began. Your majesty knows well that I had nothing to do with that day of misfortune of which I was the first dupe, end quote. You get some idea again of that kind of Russian perspective on the war. Ultimately, the ambassador's memoir recounts Ferdinand's reaction, writing, quote, Ferdinand cast his most evil glance at me, but restrained himself. And after a short silence, without raising his eyes, he said, yes, that was a great mistake. Then he rose and took leave of me, end quote. Whew, okay, so that was obviously a lot, a lot about the Balkan Wars. There's a lot to get over. This is one of the most important events in Bulgaria's history, and that will only become more clear as we cover the 20th century. But that is it for today. Next time, we'll pick up on the events which followed the Second Balkan War, including the peace treaty with the Ottomans, more violence and uprisings, and do a kind of general recap of the past few months to understand how these two wars have changed Bulgaria and the world. So you won't want to miss it, and you should be hearing it soon. This episode was written and produced by me, Eric Halsey. The theme music was written and performed by the talented Teddy Raven. As always, you can check out more information at bghistorypodcast.com. There's more linked in the episode description.